for the second half of our night tonight. Uh, thanks to my mom, Mary Klein, so much for uh, the great snacks tonight. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Mike asked you this his book, this Book of Mormon, belonged to, and I, I it is mine. I also have a couple books here called The Missing Books of the Bible. Um, I will not be using these as source material tonight for my presentation, but they are, uh, I'll refer to them in just a little bit. There are a couple books, you know, Mike, on the last page of your handout, there is a list of resources, good apologetics books, uh, great books with answers uh, to the hardest questions that skeptics ask today of Christians and Christianity. Um, I've got a couple of older ones here, They're in, there's newer versions of them nowadays, but uh, one guy, uh, you may have heard of Norman Geisler. Uh, he was a professor at Trinity and at, and at Dallas Seminary for a while. Um, when Skeptics Ask. His first version came out in 89, and then a newer version in 2008. Uh, he's still alive, still writing a lot of good stuff. Uh, Josh McDowell uh, has written a lot of good books. I'd recommend Josh McDowell. Um, also, uh, get a good book on theology that can just help your understanding and how just understanding the Bible and what it teaches very well so that when you hear these challenges and these questions from critics and skeptics, you know how to answer them because you know the word of God so well and you know your faith so well. Uh, I'd highly recommend Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem. Uh, Charles Ryrie also has a very nice book on theology called Basic Theology. Uh, so some good resources out there. Um, well, ever since... Uh, Eve encountered Satan's lies in the Garden of Eden, uh, his barrage of doubt and denial. Mankind's continued to question God's word. You know, remember how he talked to Eve and he said, did God really say? And that's kind of what we hear today in our world. Did God really say? You know, you go on these uh, articles on Yahoo, for example, on Yahoo News, on religion, any kind of religious topic, you know, at the end of those articles, there's a comment section, right? And I don't know if you ever take the time to look at those, but I've looked at some of those, and about 90% of the comments on there, you know, are ridiculing Christianity on any religious article, uh, referring to our fairy tale faith, you know, and uh, that kind of gets me a little bit. Our fairy tale faith, no way. But uh, anyways, they're not worth the time to respond to. <laughs> Unfortunately, Eve had little or no help sorting out the intellectual obstacles Satan presented to her. Adam didn't help her. And, uh, and, and today there's an attack on the Bible like we've never seen before. Uh, we kind of expect that from skeptics in the world, but even within Christianity. More teaching the Bible is not inerrant. That means without error. Uh, it's not to be taken literally that the, that the moral teachings are okay, but miracles and prophecies and supernatural events uh, cannot be believed, and that, and that science and the Bible are incompatible, as Mike said. Um, so it's necessary more than ever to defend the Bible itself as the inerrant, without error, infallible, perfect, authoritative word of God, more than ever. You know, some will say, well, this Bible is uh, just a 2,000-year-old book that's full of errors and discrepancies. Uh, they accuse it of having inaccuracies from the time it was originally written. It's accused of being inaccurate with historical people and events. Uh, it's accused of having scientific absurdities. Um, but as we're going to go into in this session and, and next week in detail, 
Uh, the text of the Bible has been transmitted accurately. The evidence for the reliability of the text of the Bible is overwhelming uh, and amazing, as we'll see tonight. And the history recorded in the Bible is, proves to be accurate. And, and as far as we're able to determine, the names, the places, the events mentioned in the Bible have been mentioned accurately. Um, and on matters of science, the Bible's claims are nowhere guilty of being ridiculous. We're going to get into some of those scientific ob objections to creation and the flood uh, next week. And the, the flood of Noah's day, for example, is actually scientifically sensible when you look at the evidence and geology and what we see in the world today. So we're going to look at, into a number of those next week. Now, for the faithful Christian, the Bible uh, still leaves us with plenty of questions sometimes. And it has certainly a lot of content to be interrogated, considering it has 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, and uh, three-quarters of a million words. And when you open your English translation to read or study, you might have asked in the past, or maybe are currently asking, how can I be sure that this is the pure and true word of God? And it's not a bad question. Uh, if you are someone who is seeking to learn with a teachable mind, th there's a bunch of really good, honest questions that we could and should ask and, and think about. Like, for example, where did the Bible come from? Uh, who determined and on what basis uh, were the books in the Bible composed? How did they get put together? Why do we have 66 books and not more or less? Did any of the books of the Bible get lost in time past? Is there more scripture to come, or, or is 66 it? Uh, what does the scripture say about itself, and does it live up to its claims? Who wrote the Bible, God or man? Uh, how close to those original manuscripts, when the ink hit the parchment, are our copies of the Bible today? Are they accurate, or has it been changed, and have errors crept in over time? How did the Bible get into our time and in our language? Uh, another one could be, has, has the scripture been protected from human tampering over the centuries? That's another argument from the skeptics that it's been tampered with over the centuries and that those miracles and events were exaggerated and gradually believed over the centuries. Well, when we look at the scriptures, it's written over a period of 1,500 years, uh, from 1405 BC to AD 95, and passed down since then for about 2,000 years and translated into several thousand languages. And so it's a good question to ask. What, what prevented the Bible from being changed by the carelessness or bad motives of men? And ultimately, what we really want to know at the end of the day is, does the Bible really deserve the title, the Word of God? Does the Bible really deserve that title? And if you had, have had any of these kind of questions or currently have these kind of questions, I think you'll be really encouraged before you leave here tonight and also come back next week uh, for more answers to good questions. Well, tonight we're going to look at the Word of God, and uh, I think this is really important that we have a solid understanding of the reliability of the Word, uh, that it's accurate, that the copies we have are accurate today, um, that it's without error, and so we're going to take tonight's session and then the first part of next week to go through this. So when you think of the Word of God, there's some different ways you could look at it. Uh, when you think of the Word of God, it can be as a person, Jesus Christ. Sometimes the Bible refers to the Son of God is the Word of God. And it's important because of, of the major themes of the Bible, they all revolve around Jesus Christ. Uh, his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming and judgment and reign on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, 
Jesus is the word of God. He reveals God to us. He's the central theme of scripture. In Revelation 19, 13, we see about Jesus that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. In John 1, 1, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and just a little bit later in that passage, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus comes onto the scene with John the Baptist there, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is referred to as the word of God. Um, also, sometimes the word of God just comes directly as speech from God himself. Sometimes he just makes a, a decree, like in Genesis 1-3, where he says, let there be light, and there was light. Or he, or he says, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. God speaks and things come into existence. Uh, Psalm 33, 6, Sossel says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Sometimes God just speaks and it happens. Sometimes he speaks to uh, people directly. So sometimes when we say the word of God, he's, he's speaking to a person on the earth. Uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you remember in the, in the garden when God told them, uh, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And, and then again in the next chapter when we have that event of the first sin, he speaks to them again, directly to them. Uh, God spoke directly to Moses. Remember in Exodus 20, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, and, then, and then in the days of John the Baptist, when Jesus was being baptized, there was that voice out of heaven speaking directly to the people witnessing that event. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God speaks directly uh, to mankind. But then sometimes he speaks through human lips. Uh, sometimes it's through a prophet or, or some other leader or a religious figure. So there were ordinary human beings who spoke an ordinary human language, but they still spoke with the authority and the truthfulness of God. They were speaking for God because he had spoken to them and given them a message to speak for him. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, we see... Uh, Moses writing here, God saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words into his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And that it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So you see how seriously God... Uh, takes this, he, he puts his words into the mouth of the prophet, and uh, if they believe the prophet, they're believing in God that it's his words, and if they don't believe in him, uh, uh, it will be required of him. And if the prophet speaks in the name of God, but he doesn't really speak the words of God, says that prophet um, will be put to death. So the words of God are to be taken seriously here. Well, uh, what are some other ways that you can think of from the Bible that uh, God communicated to man? Um, I'll just throw that out there. Can you think of other ways that God communicated to mankind? Hmm? The burning bush, okay. Yeah, when he spoke directly to Moses, the burning bush. Angels, yeah. Angels are very active. 
dreams. Yeah. Human writings. I'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Any others? Well, uh, here's a few that uh, you might not always think about, but they're there in the Bible. Sometimes he communicated through the lot. Uh, you know, you know, kind of get the long or short stick out of the draw, and, and it was used to confirm something. Like in Acts, when they were replacing Judas uh, as an apostle, they, they drew lots. And uh, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was a replacement apostle. God so used the lot in that way to communicate. Uh, there was also two stones that uh, inside the pouch on the breastplate of the Old Testament high priests that they would wear, called the Urim and the Thummim, um, kind of used like the lot. You know, they drew out the two stones, and maybe one was marked one way and one the other way. I, I don't know exactly how that worked, but you would draw out the two stones, and, and then God would use that. God would sovereignly oversee that and work that to communicate an answer of probably like yes or no. Um, but you see those mentioned in the Bible in a few places. Visions and dreams. Uh, visions kind of focus on more of what's heard, uh, where the dreams is kind of focusing on more what, of what's seen. Uh, now, here's this kind of big word, theophanies. Uh, now, before the incarnation, before Jesus Christ came in the flesh, uh, sometimes you had a, an appearance of Christ, uh, referred to as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, where he communicated some message to some people and. Uh, you see that in some places, in Genesis and Exodus and 2 Samuel. So we call that a theophany, an appearance of God. Okay, angels, uh, they appeared to Daniel. Uh, they appeared to Joseph, uh, Mary's Joseph, and, and John in Revelation. And then he also communicates through events. You know, you think of like the Exodus, the flood, the crucifixion of Jesus. God is communicating a powerful message through the events that take place in the world. All right, and then... Lastly, God's words in written form, the Bible. Can you think of the first time, the first time uh, that the Bible talks about words of God being written down? I think I heard it. Ten Commandments, yes. Ten Commandments, according to Exodus 31, were written with the finger of God. You know, when Moses went up on the mountain, uh, God is said to have written the commandments in the two tablets of stone uh, with his finger, written by the finger of God. And our, and our first five books of the Bible written by Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 31, 9 to 13 says, And Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And then you get past Moses, you get to his uh, placement, Joshua, and then it's just surprising throughout all the Bible, you see, and they wrote these things down, and they wrote these things down, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of the Lord, and Isaiah, God says, now go and write at them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come, forever and ever. And uh, so things were written down, but not everything was recorded. Not everything was written down, only what God wanted. Uh, in John 21, 25, we get to the end of this great gospel of John, and it says, and there were also, are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. <laughs> and so you think about that. And so the Bible that we have is a specific book of uh, God's communication to mankind. He put exactly what he wanted for us to know in it, no more and no less. And there, everything is in there is in there for a reason. Every event in the Gospel of John, every, lots more could have been written. 
But those things were written so that we might have them uh, for a specific purpose, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in that case. Um, okay, so I just wanted to think with you for a moment about the blessings of having being on this side of the completed Bible, that the Bible is finished. And, and what a blessing that is that we have it in book form. And today, more than ever, that we have all the forms of media that we do that make it so convenient and accessible to have the Word of God. And the, and the first blessing here I think about is, is permanence. You know, we have the permanence of the Word of God. In 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and the, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, and, and, it, has, and it has endured. It's amazing over the past couple thousand years since the Bible was completed, and even before then, that it has endured, and it will endure forever. And what a blessing it is that we have the books that we do, the printed copies, the electronic versions, the audio versions, everything that we have today. Um, for the accurate preservation of his words for future generations. And then uh, reliability. You know, because we have the printed books that we do today, it gives us the opportunity for careful study and discussion, leading to better understanding and more complete obedience. And, and I just think this verse from Joshua 1 speaks well to that, that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So because we have our printed Bibles, we just have a reliable, we have a reliable copy that we can go to for that careful study of the Word of God. What a blessing that is. Uh, and then accessibility. Just like I said, how accessible it is to so many people around the world, and all the languages that it's available in, it's just wonderful. Um, Psalm 1. One to two came to mind here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You know, there really is no excuse for us as Christians today to not meditate in the word of God, to read it on a regular basis, even day and night. It's so accessible to us today. What a blessing it is to be in this day and age. Um, so some questions for you. And, and I'm not going to, I don't know if we'll have dialogue on this or not, but maybe just to think to yourself about or take some time to write some thoughts down for yourself. But, you know, do you think you would pay more attention if God spoke to you from heaven or through the voice of a living prophet than if he spoke to you from the written words of scripture? I mean, would you, would you pay more attention if you heard God's audible voice or saw an angel or, or had a vision or dream like that than actually having the written words of God? You know, something to think about. Uh, would you believe or, be, or obey such words more readily than you do the scripture? I mean, if God said, go and do this, go uh, and preach the gospel, uh, go out to all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, if he, if he spoke that to you, would, would you be more readily uh, willing to go do that than just from reading it in the scriptures, the Bible? Um, and so then you might ask yourself, what changes might I need to make to my attitude towards Scripture to be more like the kind of attitude God wants me to have uh, to his word? All right, so I want to look at three questions. These are kind of, this is kind of the broad outline for the rest of tonight and the uh, first part of next week.
Three main questions we want to answer here. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? Uh, secondly, how did we get our Bible? I mean, who wrote it? When was it written? How do we know what belongs in the Bible and what does not belong? Uh, why do we only have 66 books and not more or less? Um, and then are there any errors in the Bible? I mean, do we have a, an accurate copy of the original so that we have an exact representation of what God said and did? Is the Bible correct and with dealing with historical people and events? Are there any scientific absurdities that would make a, this a, just a mere book of human reasoning? Or is it really a book of God? So how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Uh, first of all, it has authority, the authority of scripture. Uh, Wayne Grudem kind of speculates that most Christians would agree that the Bible is our authority in some sense. But in exactly what sense does the Bible claim to be our authority? And how do we become persuaded that the claims of scripture to be God's word are true? Well, we can look at the Old Testament and what it says about itself. Uh, God often spoke through the prophets, and they would often say, thus says the Lord. You read that throughout the Old Testament. The prophet would speak for the Lord, and he would preface that by saying, thus says the Lord. It's repeated hundreds of times. So when the prophet spoke, uh, we would know that God was speaking through him. And that same verse from Deuteronomy 18 there, again, he, God said, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So it's prophet speaking for the Lord. And when the prophet spoke in God's name with a thus says the Lord, every word he spoke had to come true, had to come to pass, or else he was a false prophet and deserved death. You know, we, we have some people in Christian circles today who claim to be a prophet of the Lord, and they, they claim to speak for the Lord. Um, but, well, let's put them to the test. Well, the test of the Bible from Deuteronomy here is that uh, every one of their words must be true. Everyone must come to pass. So, uh, okay, well, if you want to call yourself a prophet, uh, let's go. Here's the test. You, you, to pass this test, you have to have 100%, an A+. Plus. Not one of your words can be untrue to be a prophet of God. I think that would probably discredit uh, these so-called prophets today. Um, all right, so New Testament claims about the Old Testament. This is kind of interesting. In 2 Timothy 3.16, this is hopefully a familiar verse to you, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Question for you. What scriptures is Paul referring to here? The New Testament's not complete yet. And Paul's referring to all scripture as God breathed. Yeah, he's, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he, and, and he says they're breathed out by God. You know, they're not just some other uh, inspired writing or inspirational for life, but they're, they're very words of God. They, they speak for the words of God. And, and so he's referring to the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's interesting, 51 times it mentions uh, scriptures. And every one of those is referring to those Old Testament scriptures. So throughout the Old New Testament times, they recognize these Old Testament writings as scripture uh, at that time. Now, Jesus himself recognizes the Old Testament as, as scripture. In Luke 24, he he rebukes his disciples for not believing them. And he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself, uh, referring back to Moses and the prophets of scripture. And 
you know, and then uh, it's kind of an interesting scene when Jesus was tempted by the devil, right? And uh, do you remember how Jesus responded to him? He, he, he quoted scripture, right? And what's, what book in the Bible did he quote from? Anybody know that? De Deuteronomy, good. Yeah, I, one of my professors at the Mass Bible College said, you know, what if our uh, defense of our faith and ability to fight off temptation relied on our ability to quote from Deuteronomy, you know? <laughs> Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. You quoted three times from Deuteronomy. Um, and other places, they refer to what the Lord has spoken by the prophet and uh, in the New Testament. Now, what does the New Testament say about itself? You know, sometimes skeptics will claim that, well, uh, what the original writers wrote kind of got embellished over the years. And uh, over the course of a couple hundred years, it kind of grew and uh, miracles were accepted and believers kind of believed greater and bigger things than actually what happened in the first place. Well. Uh, at the very time when the ink hit the parchment, they recognized those words as scripture. We see even the Apostle Peter recognizing the Apostle Paul's writings at that, at that very time as scripture. He says, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so here, Peter is referring to Paul's writings as scripture, uh, a contemporary at that very time recognizing them. Here's another great one in 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so, uh, well, the, those are two quotes. Uh, but do they both come from the Old Testament? Uh, well, the first part does. In Deuteronomy 25.4, it's a, it's a partial quote. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. But uh, if you know your Old Testament pretty well, you, you might think, uh, well, I don't recognize that second part from the Old Testament. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, it doesn't come from the Old Testament. The scripture he's referring to here in that second uh, quotation is from Luke, Luke 10.7. Now that's pretty cool. In this verse here, you got he's referring to scripture, both an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament current scripture as scripture. First um, Corinthians fourteen thirty seven also says, "If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord." And, and so Paul, who's referring to all the commandments he just instituted for the church worship at Corinth, he refers to them as the commandments of the Lord. And that's what the people recognized them as at the time the ink hit the parchment. Second uh, Peter 3.2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. So there the Peter is equating those words before spoken by the holy prophets of the Old Testament uh, and, the, and the, the apostles' teachings on the same level, on the same level. It's pretty cool. All right, now, uh, was the scripture written by man or by God? Or, or how did that work exactly? Uh, the Holy Spirit guided the New Testament writers. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And, and in John 16, he, he says about the same thing. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and he will tell you things to come. So Jesus saying, uh, promising that the Holy Spirit would come and help them remember things and write things and guide them into the truth. And then when we get to the writings in, in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 13, Paul says, these things which we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And, and this is a, this next verse is kind of a great verse that kind of helps us think through the mechanics of how it worked. Uh, 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So uh, the ultimate source of every prophecy ever given was, was not just a man's decision about what he wanted to write, but the Holy Spirit's action in the prophet's life. And, and Wayne Grudem has a great quote that kind of sums up how this worked out. He says, God's providential oversight and direction of the life of each author was such that their personalities, their backgrounds and training, their abilities to evaluate events in the world around them, their access to historical data, their judgment with regard to accuracy of information, and their individual circumstances when they wrote were all exactly what God wanted them to be. So that when they actually came to the point of putting pen to paper, or papyrus, the words were fully their own words, but also the words that God wanted them to write. Words that God would also claim as his own. So each of these men were human men who had their own experiences and backgrounds and styles of writing and personalities. But through it all, God, the, the Holy Spirit, was overseeing it all and using their experiences and backgrounds and personalities, but overseeing them and helping them to remember and put to parchment, to papyrus, exactly the words he wanted us to have. So God working through humans. So it's both a book of God and of man, um, primarily a book of God. All right, some objections. Uh, this is uh, defending your faith, so we better have some objections that we answer. And uh, one of the internal objections to the Bible is that the apostles were not as authoritative as Jesus. You know, whatever Jesus said was authoritative, but, uh, you know, the apostles, they, you know, not as, maybe not as authoritative. And the example they sometimes give is... Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. Um, so some say this means that Paul was giving his own opinion, but it wasn't as authoritative as what Jesus said. Um, and verses 25 and 40 say, he had no earthly word of Jesus spoken on this subject, had not received a subsequent revelation about it from him. But does that mean that it wasn't as authoritative as the words of Jesus? You know, even though the Lord hadn't spoken these specific words Paul was writing right there, Paul spoke as, according to verse 25 in that chapter, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You know, the Lord hadn't spoken this directly to him but, uh, at the time from before, but he is now being revealed, uh, he revealed his message to Paul at this time. And his word is trustworthy, and it has just as much authority as the words of Jesus. Uh, so, answer. All right, secondly, and Mike talked about this and did a good job on, on circular reasoning. I just wanted to touch on it again because it is uh, such a big objection to the Word of God, using the Bible to prove it is the Word of God, and, and, and it's not a problem that's unique to Christianity, as we heard earlier. But the, but the Bible is, is really far more convincing in matters of history, archaeology, science, uh, its consistency and style, than the Book of Mormon or 
the Quran or science or human reasoning. And, and we're going to try to back that up here. Um, but you know what? If we just appeal to human reasoning or historical accuracy or scientific truth, then those things become a higher authority than God's words. But if we use scripture to prove itself to be God's words, isn't that still a circular argument? Well, all arguments, as, as Mike did a great job of explaining, must ultimately appeal to an absolute authority for proof. And, and if the Bible really is the absolute uh, authority of truth, it has to uh, claim that for itself. I mean, that's what you would expect of a book of absolute and highest authority and truth, that it would claim that for itself. And kind of a funny little image here uh, that a skeptic might write in response to us that says the napkin religion is the one true religion because it says so right here on this napkin. But uh, you know what? That, that's OK. I'm, I'm OK with them saying that. That's circular reasoning because the Bible is the highest authority, and so it must claim that for itself. All right. Contradictions. Well, they say the Bible is full of contradictions. What do we say to that? Sometimes in the Gospels, we have different accounts of the same event, you know, the four Gospels, and, and they seem to differ a little bit. You know, the one, one writer has some details here, and it doesn't appear to line up with what this other guy's saying over here. Looks to be like a contradiction. Like, uh, you know, when, when there's the account of Jesus uh, crossing the lake and he comes to the tombs of the Gadarenes, there's the uh, one writer says there was one demon-possessed man, and uh, another one says there's two demon-possessed men. Well, there's a contradiction for you, right? But our answer to that is that these are just apparent contradictions that can be explained. And in the case of the four Gospels, it's kind of what you would expect from four different men, right? With a different perspective, recalling different levels of detail of the same events. And, and when you actually assemble the four Gospel accounts together, it's what's called a harmony of the Gospels. You could look that up sometime, a harmony of the Gospels. Uh, it's really neat. It really gives you a richer and deeper and fuller account, account of what actually happened. And, and we do this kind of complementary accounting of events today. I mean, what if we were to do that kind of thing tonight and, and write uh, some accounts of what happened here tonight? And, and somebody uh, might say, well, there, there, was, uh, there was two speakers uh, at this event talking about defending your faith. And somebody else would make an account of tonight and say, well, uh, there was some great ice cream at this event tonight, uh, great ice cream and snacks. And somebody else might think, I went to that event, and I was just so glad I didn't have to worry about my kids for an hour or two, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and the, but all those things would have been true. There would have been different levels of detail, different perspective on what maybe was the most significant thing to them that happened that, at that event. But when you put it all together, you kind of get this rich picture of, well, I came into this class, and there were two speakers speaking about it, and we had some great ice cream in the middle, and kids were babysat. You kind of get this richer, deeper, fuller picture of the whole thing when you put all the accounts together. So rather than being contradictions, uh, they complement each other. And in the case of the issue of the demon-possessed men, you have two men mentioned in Matthew, but Mark and Luke only chose to focus on one of them, right? That's OK. Same thing with Judas. Uh, another popular one thrown out there is Judas Iscariot and his death. Matthew 27 says he went away and hanged himself. But uh, you look in Acts 1, it says he fell headlong and burst open. Kind of a gruesome ending to his life there. Well, which one is true? The one where he went and hanged himself or the one where he fell headlong and burst open? Well, both are true. Both are true. Judas uh, went out and hanged himself in remorse for betraying Jesus. 
And we could reasonably speculate that either the branch or, or broke or the rope broke or he somehow failed in uh, committing suicide and uh, fell down in, to one of the jagged rocks in that area. We, we think we know from archaeology where this area was and there's a lot of jagged rocks on this uh, hillside there. And it's very likely that he went and hanged himself, as Matthew 27 says. Well then, you know, what a failure even in his death that the branch broke or the rope broke and he, and he fell into a very gruesome ending. So not a contradiction. We can explain all the apparent contradictions in the Bible. All right, how are we convinced? How are we convinced that the Bible claims to be God's word? And uh, it is a matter of faith and a matter of the working of God. When the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts, he gives us that inner assurance that these are the words from our Creator speaking to us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned. And another way we can be convinced that the Bible's claims to be God's word are true or by being one of God's sheep. You know, uh, John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so as we read the words of Scripture, God is speaking to us, and he gives us that assurance uh, when we know him. And they're spiritually discerned. We have to be one of his sheep of his fold to understand and know and believe them. There's a nice little picture of some sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. But uh, if we are God's sheep, he won't let us go astray, right? Okay. How we got our Bible. Uh, here's a, well, I've, I've got a few questions in your outline for you to kind of think through here. I don't know if I'll go through all of them right now, but uh, if you want to persuade someone that the Bible is God's word, what do you want that person to read more than any other piece of literature? Right? You, just, you just want them to read Josh McDowell and Norman Geisler, is that what you want them to read more than anything else to convince them that the Bible is God's word? No, no, we want to give them the Bible, the very words of God themselves, because then God uh, will do that spiritual work of convincing them of the truth. All right, some other questions you can kind of look at and think through and meditate on, and, uh, good stuff. All right, so I want to think about a little bit now how we got our Bible. Uh, what belongs in the Bible? What does not belong? I was working a temp job in the summer during my college years at Guide One Insurance, uh, processing watercraft insurance applications. And they had a great lunch benefit there. Uh, it was a free full buffet every day, a college student's dream, right? And so you go there and fill up your tray with food every day. And I'd go sit in the cafeteria and be reading the Bible during my lunch break every day. And that led to a couple of interesting conversations with other people there. And one day, a man noticed me there reading my Bible and he comes over and introduces himself as elder or somebody from this you know, church. And I was kind of excited at first, you know, this guy coming over, taking an interest in me and offering to read scriptures with me. And I, I saw him there holding a couple of books in his hand. And I said, oh, you, you're reading your Bible too. And I says, well, I, I'm reading my scriptures. And that red, red light goes off in my head, scriptures. Wait, there's only one scripture. And uh, so I, I soon find out that he's an elder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, you know? He is a Mormon, uh, a leader, a teacher in that church. Well, they don't just have the Bible, you know? They have the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of the Great Price, the Doctrines and Covenants. So unfortunately, they use four sets of scriptures, not just one. So what belongs in the Bible, what does not belong? Why, why, why do we say that this Book of Mormon that I got for a quarter at a Mayus Bible College book sale is not part of the Word of God. Uh, this has made a nice prop for my actual study desk. You know, one side of the, the desk was kind of unbalanced, and I needed a few books there to kind of balance it and keep it even. And th this was a pretty good use for that. I had to do, go to a little work to get it out just to show you tonight. But uh, 
1920 copy of the Book of Mormon there, which the Mormons came to my door one time, uh, tried to trade up for. You know, they were coming to witness to us, and they offered me their copy of the Book of Mormon for that one when they saw it was a nice, hardbound 1920 copy. They're like, I didn't want to encourage them. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. So why is it important to your Christian life uh, to know which writings are God's words and which are not? Well, it's very important. Because if we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words and books that we are certain that are God's absolutely, um, his God's own words to us. And it's very important because God commands us not to add or take away from it. In Deuteronomy 4.2, says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Now, if you've ever had doubts or questions about the inclusion or exclusion of any of the books of the Bible, let's see if we can resolve some of those right now. Let, let's put it to the test. Well, first of all, we want to know what's in our Bible, right? Uh, I've got a little graphic here up for you and on the handout. Uh, from the divine point of view, the Spirit of God used these men for its production, like we read those verses. And from the human perspective, we have about 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years. Uh, we have Genesis through Deuteronomy, those first five books are called the Law or the Pentateuch, written by Moses, uh, who was the political leader of the, uh, the Israelites and trained in Egypt around 1400 BC. And then we have Joshua, obviously writing the book after his own name, Joshua. Uh, but do you also realize that he wrote the last eight verses of Deuteronomy? Why, why did Joshua write the last eight verses of Deuteronomy? Anybody know? It, yeah, it was about Moses' death. He couldn't have written about it himself. All right, so Joshua taking Moses' place there. Then we have Samuel, writing the book of Samuel. We have the book of Psalms, written by many of them written by David, who we know was a shepherd, a warrior, a king, a prophet throughout his lifetime, about 1,000 B.C. We have Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and the compiled Proverbs, written by King Solomon, David's son. We have Judges, Ruth, Esther, 2 Samuel. Not 100% sure uh, which prophet penned them. Um, maybe a collection. Kings and Chronicles, written by prophets Samuel and Nathan and Gad and Jehu and Isaiah, written over a long period of time. So you have to have multiple prophets writing these books, and, and then they get compiled later on. You have uh, what we call the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, anybody know why we call them major prophets versus the rest of the 12 of the Old Testament, which we call minor prophets? Longer. Yeah, longer. Not because they're more important. Uh, they're longer. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are longer. And Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. He was also known as, Jeremiah, do you know what his nickname was? Yeah, the, the, the weeping prophet. Yeah, he had a lot of uh, prophecies that were kind of hard to deliver, you know, about his people and the spiritual state of his people and what was going on at that time. And so he's known as the weeping prophet. Okay, Hosea through Malachi then, the 12 minor prophets, minor because they're shorter. And then you have Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, uh, penned about 435 B.C. So then we have the end of the Old Testament. And then we have 400 years of silence. And that's kind of interesting. No prophet in Israel from Malachi until John the Baptist. Um, imagine what it was like for those Jews, you know, during those 400 years. Not to have a prophet for 435 years. You know, for us uh, to kind of put that in contemporary perspective, and here in the year 2015, which now dates me on this recording, but... Uh, you know, that would be like not having a prophet since the year 1580 for us, you know, back 435 years, right? 
not having a prophet since 1580. And you, you can kind of identify with these Jews, like, you know, where is God? Uh, you know, is he really going to fulfill his promises to us uh, to send a Messiah and, and a forerunner to the Messiah, a prophet? And then all of a sudden, after this 435 years, you have John the Baptist uh, showing up and preaching repentance and baptizing people and people recognizing him as a, as a prophet. And, and he's promising that the Messiah is coming. And people were excited, and they came out by large numbers to see John. And, and then, then there's that day when John sees Jesus coming. And, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Just what an awesome thing that is. After 435 years of silence, you know, like we haven't heard anything from God since 1580. And then all of a sudden, here's the prophet on the scene saying, here's the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God. That would have been so exciting to the Jews. And and then when Jesus came, he was so different from those Old Testament prophets. You know, the prophets said, thus says the Lord. But you know what Jesus said? He didn't say, thus says the Lord. He said, I say to you, right? Uh, Jesus spoke with the authority of God himself. That's pretty amazing. And then we have four gospel accounts, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then a book of history called Acts. And then we have Paul's letters, 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. So these are uh, Paul's writings here. And then, then we have Hebrews. Uh, does anybody uh, know who wrote the book of Hebrews? Can you tell me that? <laughs> Maybe. We don't know. That's a, good, that's a good guess. You know what? They, they originally thought that maybe it was written by Paul or a close associate of his. Some also say maybe somebody like Barnabas. Uh, we don't know. We don't know for sure, but that's okay. Um, you know, really the point of the book of Hebrews is to exalt Jesus Christ, right, as our great high priest. And so it doesn't matter so much which specific apostle or close associate of the apostles wrote that book uh, because the point is that it, it's all to lift up and glorify Jesus Christ. So I'm okay with that. James uh, wrote James, uh, first, second, third John by John, and Jude wrote his book, you know, James and John, the half-brothers of Jesus. And then Revelation, the last book of the Bible, written by the Apostle John. And so John has written five books total, right, of the New Testament. You got, you got the Gospel of John, first, second, third John, and then Revelation. So he writes five books. All right, a question for you. What language was the Bible written? How about the Old Testament? What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Hebrew, yep. Any other languages? Yep, New Testament was written in Greek. Um, also, parts of Daniel and Ezra were also written in Aramaic at the time. It's kind of an interesting note. All right, many people, you know, kind of assume that maybe the New Testament was written in Hebrew too, just like the Old Testament, but uh, it was written in Greek. You know, the, at the time, uh, the Jews didn't even speak Hebrew anymore in the New Testament. Uh, Rome had conquered Greece, and the influence of the Greek culture saturated the empire. And uh, what's interesting about the biblical Greek, it, was, it wasn't written in a, a high class or complicated style. It was just written in common Greek, which everybody would have understood. So that was, that was pretty neat that we have the New Testament in Greek, a language everybody understood and spoke at the time. Now, um, I, I don't think I'll get going too far into this right now. We're kind of at the close of our time here, but I just kind of, want to start it off, and then next week we're going to get into some more of the details of how we know what belongs in the Bible and what does not belong. Sometimes we refer to this as the canonicity of the Bible. The word canon, uh, not to make you think of Civil War canons, but uh, you know, a rule or measuring rod, and, and this is how the theologians say it. The canon of the Bible is the collection of books which pass the test of authenticity and authority. 
They are also the books that are our rule of life. And there's a lot of Christian writers throughout Bible times. Uh, and, and they wrote more than what was in our 66 books of the Bible. And so how did the church fathers decide which books belonged in the canon? Uh, why do we only have 66 in the Bible, books of the Bible and not the, not the 14 books of the Apocrypha, which the Roman Catholic Church has accepted as scripture? Why, why don't we recognize those writings of the Maccabees during those intertestamental period, you know, that 400-year period of silence? There were some writings there, these apocryphal writings, 14 books. So why don't we recognize those as scripture? Why don't we recognize the writings of Muhammad or of Joseph Smith, you know, with the Book of Mormon, right? Or, uh, you know, one time when I was in college, uh, I got a package from my grandma. You love getting a package in college from your grandma. And I opened it up and I was a little puzzled. I got these two books called The Missing Books of the Bible. And it was these book, 14 books of the Apocrypha. And I, I thought, that kind of feels weird, you know, this uh, missing books of the Bible. I don't like the sound of that. You know, and, but I'm, I'm sure she didn't send them to me because she believed in them or read them. She just probably thought it was something interesting to send to me because I was studying the Bible and such. And you, you can read about the book of Barak and the epistle of Jeremy and the prayer of Azariah and all these other, quote, missing books of the Bible. So how do we know they shouldn't be included? And, there, and there's some different tests that we can give to determine it's that what a book should be a part of the Bible or shouldn't be a part of the Bible. And first of all, maybe this is the only one we'll do tonight, is the writer. You know, the writer of the books of the Bible couldn't just be anyone, right? Um, it couldn't just be anyone. In the Old Testament, the writer had to be a prophet or a lawgiver or a leader. Like you have Daniel, right? He was a government official and a prophet. You have David, who was a king and also a prophet. You have Solomon, who was a king. You have Ezra, who was a scribe, a leading scribe. You have Nehemiah, a cupbearer and governor, although Ezra wrote the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and then many prophets. Uh, so it couldn't just be anyone. Uh, in the New Testament, the qualification for a writer was that it had to be written or, or backed by an apostle, right? Written or backed by an apostle. So you, you had some uh, apostolic uh, approval for the ones that weren't written by an apostle. Uh, can you think of which books weren't written by an apostle? Luke, yeah. Acts. A few more. We have the Gospel of Mark. Mark wasn't an apostle. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, so maybe an apostle, maybe not. One more. Jude, did I hear Jude? Okay, well, I was list, list, wishful listening. Uh, Jude, yeah. So uh, some of these, you know, we have uh, Gospel of Mark. Well, he was backed by the Apostle Peter. He spent time with the Apostle Peter, and many believe, and theologians say that you know Peter passed on his experiences to the Gospel to Mark, uh, and you know, and they were worked together. So if Mark recorded it, and he was working with Peter, who was an eyewitness to all the things, and 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 he, and he said, Peter, this is what I've written about this account from what you've told me. And Peter could have said, No, that wasn't right. Revise it, change it, make it right. Or he could have said, No, that is right. So he was backed by Peter. You also have that for Luke. Right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, um, which kind of chronologically follow each other. Well, when we look in the Book of Acts, uh, you say, you read throughout the first 26 chapters that they did this, or they did that, or they did this. Then you come to chapters 27, 28, and Paul is on that ship journey up to Rome as, he, as he's in captivity. And, and Luke is with him, because then he starts speaking as we did this, and we did that, and we went there. Those are called the we passages of Acts. 
And so Luke right there with the Apostle Paul. Paul could have verified everything for Luke. Luke was a doctor. He, could, he is a careful researcher. And, and Paul would have backed him up on that. Hebrews, the many early on believed he was written by the Apostle Paul, not for sure. Uh, and then Jude, half-brother of Jesus. So, uh, yeah, written or backed by an apostle or the Lord. Um, I'll do one more quick one as we close. Internal evidence. The internal evidence in each book shows that it is inspired and authoritative revelation from God. You know, it's amazing, the, the, the fulfillment of prophecy. And next week when I, when I finish the rest of this uh, on the test for canonicity, why we believe certain books are included and not included, and I'm going to talk about the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels and other Book of Mormon, and why, why don't we consider those scripture? we get into more detail on that next time. Um, and why the church approved the ones the way they did. But so next week I wanna, I'm going to present an acronym called MAPS. I'm borrowing this from Hank Hanegraaff, uh, quote, the Bible answer man. A good on apologetics. Maybe not so much on eschatology, but uh, if you listen to him, he's not a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial theologian as, as we all are, right? But uh, <laughs> we talked about that in our last Creekside View. So uh, MAPS, real quick, is manuscript, evidence, archaeology, Prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy, and statistics. So manuscript evidence, archaeology, prophecy, and statistics really give great uh, you know, evidence for the reliability of the Bible. And, and we're going to look at just how amazing that evidence is. It's just overwhelming. And if you have any doubt that, that this book we have, this book of 66 books, is the Word of God, or if something was left out or not, you have no doubt about it. After our next session next week, you'll have no doubt that the evidence is overwhelming that the Bible we have today is complete. And it contains all the words and books God wants us to have. Uh, no doubt about it. And so that's, that's just great to know that we have the very words of God in our hands when we open our Bibles. No more and no less. And then next week also Mike Johnson's going to uh, fire us up on some of the responses to critics on creation and the flood. Uh, you know, six-day creation, was the flood really a worldwide flood? All those kind of great stuff. So let's pray as we close. Father, I just thank you for our time tonight, and uh, we just praise you that the book we hold in our hands that we call the Bible um, is truly the Word of God. That uh, It's consistent throughout it, throughout 1,500 years and 40 authors, no true contradictions, no errors, no mistakes. Uh, nothing more included than should have been, no less included than should have been. And uh, Lord, we look forward to gathering together again next week and exploring that in a little bit uh, more detail and just being encouraged by the thought, Lord, that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us, and it's so wonderful that you've told us all that you've told us about creation and our sin and the need for a Savior and that you've sent your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. And, and Lord, we believe it by faith. We thank you for that work you do in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to convince us of your truth, um, that you've given us this book of truth, that you've given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior, uh, by faith in him, believing in him, trusting in him, that we might have the eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we just pray that as we encounter people in our spheres of influence, our circles of life and work or in our neighborhoods or wherever, that we would be emboldened, Lord, to give and have an answer ready for any question that comes to us. Um, and Lord, that, they, that people might be won over to Christ through um, very good answers that are out there that we can give them for the objections that they have. 
And Lord, we ultimately know that it is a matter of faith. Um, please convince us in our hearts even more fully uh, of your truth and that we might also go emboldened to convince others of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to thank you all for coming. And I hope you all can come next week. We're going to have another great night like this and some great snacks, I think, again. And uh, also some babysitting for the kids. So appreciate your time. <laughs>